it's actually going to be a little different today because we're going to start with um, the sermon because um, I double booked myself today. Um, so I'm going to preach here and then I'm going to run on my motorcycle and uh, I promise I'll be safe in the rain probably and I'm going to Castro Valley to preach at another church that starts at 10:15. So, uh, I know we're gonna see. I'll let you guys know next week if I made it. I told the other church that um, uh, I'll probably run in right before the sermon starts. Somebody hand me my microphone, and uh, I'll be all wet from the rain. But uh, we'll figure it out. Um, so anyway, today we're back in the book. So we're, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna start in Revelation. Uh, we're gonna start in, with the sermon and do the rest of the service. I'm gonna take off, um, and Flora's gonna lead us in music and all that stuff. Um, Anyway, so we're going to start with the sermon today. So if you have a Bible, you can flip to um, Revelation chapter 2. Um, if you want to follow along in the Bible app, uh, there's the, the code thing, the QR code. Um, did it work all the way from back there? Yeah? Nice. Look at that. Fancy. Um, uh, let me open in prayer first, though. Lord, we thank you for today and uh, uh, just for time to get together and to... Um, study your word together and to sing your praises and um, I just pray that you would be here among us now and that you would um, speak to your people. Amen. All right, so if you remember, we're reading these seven letters to the churches in Revelation and we're reading them just in the order that a mail carrier would have delivered these letters. Um, and so uh, Ephesus was first, uh, Smyrna was second. So now today we're on to our third city, just on the little mail route, which is a city called Pergamum. Now Pergamum was a pretty big city at the time. There was almost 200,000 people around uh, that lived in this city. Now that doesn't sound very big for our cities, but in the ancient world that made it a pretty major city. Um, this city had a library with over uh, 200,000 volumes. And if you can imagine, in the ancient world, there weren't a lot of places you could go read a book. And so for a city to have a library was a big deal. And so um, I know Kayla from the porch loves, the, if you listen to the podcast later, Kayla, I know she loves libraries, and so she would have really loved this city. Um, this city was, just like the one last week, um, was another one of the centers of emperor worship. And we talked about this a bunch last time. Um, but they, they, So they had temples here to the emperor, but they also had temples... Um, there was a major temple to the god, um, the Greek god Zeus. And as you would walk into the city, uh, you would go through this main street, and there was this 800-foot-high uh, kind of platform. And on top of this platform was this giant uh, altar to Zeus looking down over the city. And so this is the city now that Jesus is uh, writing this um, third letter to this church. There's a church here in the city. So let's read the letter together. Um, it says, uh, and to the angel, oh, if you remember real fast, let me just say this real fast. Uh, each of these letters kind of follows, not exactly, but usually follows this sort of a pattern, right? So you have your, the description of Christ, you have the good, the bad, what's the solution, what are people called to do, what's the consequence for disobedience, and what's the promise for those who conquer. So every one of these letters follows the same pattern. So we'll start here just with the um, opening, the description of Jesus in this letter. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, again, a lot of the descriptions in, this, uh, in these seven letters are actually just recapped from what John says in his vision uh, in chapter 1. There's, this, there's these um, uh, 
this grand vision of Jesus in chapter 1, and a lot of this is rehashed from that. And so this is one of those. It comes from 116, chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was uh, like the shining like the sun shining in full strength. So a sharp two-edged sword in the ancient world is a picture of warfare. It's a picture of uh, Jesus's judgment. And um, Jesus describes himself as the one who brings this judgment. But if you see in 116 there, um, what it says is that the sword is not in his hand where you would usually find a sword. Whenever you think a sword, you think of somebody swinging it, right? But in, um, in the imagery there, it's coming out of his mouth, which is symbolic uh, imagery. We're not meant to take this literally. I've seen pictures of, <clears throat> sorry, I've seen pictures of uh, Jesus, you know, on the clouds, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And I'm like, well, okay, that's not what's exactly going to happen. It's imagery to, as a way to say that um, through the word of his mouth, it's how he brings about his judgment. And we get this idea from Hebrews 4.12. It says this, uh, 12 and 13. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So nothing can be hidden from the word of Christ's judgment. Um, Now, back in Pergamum, what's the reason uh, for the judgment? We'll get to that in just a second. But before we do, let's talk about what's the good. So the pattern is the description of Jesus. Then he gets to what's good about this church. Uh, And this is what he says in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he says, look, I know you guys live where Satan's throne is, where Satan. And then at the end, he says where Satan dwells. Now, there's many theories. All the commentators and all the theologians argue about what does he mean by where Satan, uh, where his throne is. Some say it's the, uh, that statue of Zeus as you walk into the city. So as soon as you walk into the city, you know this city is about idolatry. Um, some believe it was, there was a temple there to uh, a god of healing named um, Aslopius, Aslopius uh, who was portrayed like a serpent. Uh, and so a lot of people think it was a reference to that. Some people think that this was a um, center of Uh, kind of an ancient Babylonian religion. Some think it had to do with the emperor worship. There's another few options as well. It's not crucial to know exactly what Jesus meant when he called this place the throne of Satan. But the idea is clear, right? The enemy of God has a stronghold somehow in this city. Um, Now, I grew up with a bunch of uh, French international students living at my house. So every year, for years and years and years, we had a, a guy come live with us. So me, I had two brothers, so the three of us, and there'd always be a fourth kind of almost a brother there. And, uh, you know, we were all high school age, junior high age. And so I grew up learning how to make fun of the French, right, because I had this fourth brother. And it was always a lot of fun. And, you know, the French, uh, I always joke about how the French always lose wars. You know, that like kind of narrative. And so I would always say things like how uh, the French should just go ahead and change their flag to the white flag because they they don't have to keep going back and forth, you know, or (laughs) um, how the only war the French ever won was the French Revolution. But that's just because they were fighting the French. That's another good one. Or uh, 
I don't know. I had a million of these, right? Oh, did you know this actually? I don't know if it still is. I should have tested this. But back then, if you go to Google and you type in French military victories and then you hit the I'm feeling lucky button, Google has a little joke in there where it says, I'm sorry, we didn't find anything. Did you mean French military defeats? Right? And so those were all the jokes, right? That's the reputation of the French. But the truth is um, about, let me tell you about the French resistance during World War II. The truth about it is it's pretty amazing, right? They formed uh, communities within the heart of Nazi-occupied France. And they fought the Nazis. They sabotaged railways. They freed prisoners. They cut communication lines. They really helped pave the way. Uh, so all of my jokes actually don't make any sense when you know anything about these French, revolution, or these French uh, resistance fighters. Um, they really helped pave the way for the Allied invasion of uh, Germany. And some of the bravest people in history were the French who lived in Nazi-occupied France. Um, now, at the same time, across the border, there were also uh, people in a German resistance in Nazi Germany. And there were several attempts on Hitler's life. Uh, what was that movie? Um, you know, Tom Cruise had the eye patch. I forget what the, I'm blanking on the movie. But anyway, there were a couple of uh, Valkyrie. There were the Valkyrie plot. And even there was a pastor, a famous pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who participated in a plot to assassinate uh, Hitler. See, they were in Nazi territory and they fought back. Um, so, in the heart of Nazi Germany, there were these people who didn't give in to that evil. And this is, what, this is exactly what the people in this city of Pergamum did. They were in a city that Jesus decided, out of all the cities that he's writing to, he decides, this is the city that I'm going to say, this is the throne of Satan. This is where Satan dwells. Satan has some sort of a stronghold here, and you guys are surrounded by this, by this Roman injustice, by evil, by a worldview that is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. And through it, you were faithful. He says, you hold fast to my name. Now, remember that whole bit we've talked about the last two weeks about swearing allegiance to Caesar. Uh, to do that was to deny the name of Jesus. And these believers refused to do it, They even at the cost of martyrdom. See, this says... You were faithful even when Antipas was killed among you. Now, we don't know anything really. We don't know a lot about this guy, uh, Antipas, uh, and how he was killed. One church father who wrote over 100, about 100 years later after this guy, um, he said his name was Tertullian. And he said that he was a church leader who was captured because he wouldn't throw that incense in the fire and uh, was roasted alive in a brazen, like a bronze bull idol. So they, 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 they hollow thing, and then they lit a fire underneath it, and they threw this guy in there, and they cooked him, right? That's brutal. And what Jesus says, and we don't know that as a fact. That's what one guy says uh, quite a while later. Um, but there's probably some truth to that. That's a weird story to make up. And so Jesus says, even after you saw this guy get cooked alive, you were still faithful to me. It's commendable. And the, the, the good thing about this church actually says a lot— um, Sorry, uh, getting all these notifications on my iPad. Um, the good thing about what the, Jesus has to say to this church actually says a lot to us churches in San Francisco. Because I'll tell you why. One time, I, I tell this story a lot because this is hilarious. I listen to a lot of sermons. I'm a sermon junkie. I love preaching. I love hearing other people preach. I love the fact that God has called people to preach. It's a wonderful thing, preaching. And uh, just studying the word. And so I was listening to a sermon once, and it was a guy in Albuquerque, and he was teaching, and he said... Uh, he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, in our culture, what's something like Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, what's the most wicked city in America? And in unison, the entire crowd in Albuquerque goes, San Francisco, Vegas. You know, like one guy in the background, Vegas. But for the most part, everybody in unison decided that we, where we live right now is 
the, the, the most wicked city, and, that, and that's our reputation, right? The city where the throne of Satan is kind of a thing. Our city is a very post-Christian city. People here have moved on from Christianity. So we've moved on from Christianity as one of the options, and if you want to choose that, that's okay to, with you, to where now Christianity is kind of part of the problem, and we're seen as the bad guys almost. And that makes... This makes it a tough place for us to get together and partner like this and to start a church together. And it makes it a tough place to be uh, just a worker and to be somebody in the workplace who, um, I always like that language to say, like, I out myself as a follower of Jesus. So I'm not a secret follower of Jesus. It's a hard place to do that. And so we aren't yet to a place where anybody's going to be baking you alive or jailing you or executing you. But right now, to be a follower of Jesus in our city, there are other consequences, right? We are outcasts for our biblical sexual ethics what we believe about sex and how god created sex and all that stuff makes us outcasts because the rest of our city does not believe that or there are folks out there who want to uh, take away the tax exemption that churches have for and they say well we want everything to be fair but the real reason is because if that happens tons of smaller churches are just going to run out of money and are going to have to close their doors there are all these consequences to living in a place like where we live. And so Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum are especially comforting to us. He says, guys, I know where you live. He knows. He knows how hard it is for us to start a church together. Like, uh, we're getting together with this partnership, and the idea is we're going to plant this new church. And Jesus knows that's not going to be easy. There's a reason that there's not a whole bunch of church planters banging on their door to plant churches in North Beach and Chinatown. Because this is a very tough place to do it. And he knows... uh, how hard it is for us to be here and to love the city and to serve the people in the city. He knows how hard it is to live here without compromising our faith to popular social narrative. He knows where we live, just like he knew where this church in Pergamum lives. Now back to the chapter two. So even though he is very proud of this church in Pergamum, it's not all gravy, right? Look what he says in 14 and 15. He says, look, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who, who taught Balak, Uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he says, look, I have a few things against you. It's not all good. What is it that they were doing? He says, look, you have these false teachers there. Jesus's problem, he says, you have some who are false teachers. These people, these false teachers were actually a part of the church. They were church members, people in the inner circle, people who vote, people who make decisions. And so what I don't want to do is I rail on these false teachers for a second. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Church should be always absolutely a safe place for anybody of any belief system to come in and spend some time thinking about God and thinking of what they, uh, trying to figure out what they believe about God. We should be creating a safe space for that. Um, And so they should be free to ask questions. My sermons here should hit on the questions that they have, because what we want people to do is process through what do they believe, because we believe we actually do have the truth. Now, one thing though we're going to talk, and so one thing we're going to talk a lot about at the porch is how do outsiders feel? We're going to try to give up some of our preferences to make it more comfortable to serve and to remove stumbling blocks, but without sacrificing any gospel truth. We're never going to give up on the gospel. So as we get into these false teachers, what I want to say first is I want you to hear me. I'm not saying you have to believe this, this, and this, and this, or we're going to throw you out of the church. Um, But 
I think to be a member, there are certain things you're going to have to, you know, normal just sort of gospel things. You're, we, we're going to want to know that you're actually a follower of Jesus. To be a leader in the church, there's going to be another bar for that. And I think that's what was lacking here in Pergamum. There were no standards probably to be in the church membership roles. There weren't any standards uh, to be part of the leadership. And so what is it that they were teaching that was so bad? Well, Jesus says, you have some there who are teaching, you know, like this stuff, this Balaam stuff. Now, what is he talking about? Well, to understand this, you have to understand um, a uh, idea called biblical typology. Now, here's how this works. God is the sovereign Lord of history. And so everything that happens in history it, on multiple levels is in, within God's control. And so in his sovereign control, he's worked out the story of redemption in a way that's really cool. There are events, people, places, and things in earlier points in the story of redemption uh, that help teach us about things that come later. So for example, so something happens on a small scale, later on happens on a big scale. And so God ordained that smaller thing to happen so that when the big thing happens, we would understand it better. So think of like the Passover, right? What happens at Passover? The people are freed from their bondage by killing a lamb and spreading its blood across their doors, right? They're saved by the sacrifice of the lamb. That's the small version. But what we're told in Hebrews is those sacrifices were never meant to be permanent. They were just placeholders until the real one comes along. And the real one was Jesus, right? When John saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody knew what that meant. Oh, he's the new and better Passover lamb. Or you have David, right, as a king, but he's an imperfect king. He's, he's, he's good, but he's not... Uh, perfect. And as we read the story of David, we go, man, we need a, a perfect king. And so then when Jesus comes along and he tells Pilate, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews. You know, I am the king. We see, wow, this guy is the perfect king. And so we have all the, we have all these examples. I mean, there are hundreds and uh, maybe thousands of examples in the Old Testament of these sort of things that help us teach in the New Testament. That's what typology is. Now, in this story, Balaam and Balak is used as a typology. So to understand it, you have to know the original story. And my guess is that not a lot of people here think that Numbers chapter 22 is their favorite chapter in the Bible, right? Not a lot of people know this story. So I'll tell it to you. In Numbers 22 through 25, the people of Israel were wandering uh, through the desert, you know, in the 40 years. It's the whole story of that 40 years of wandering. And um, Balak, the king of Moab, hires this wandering prophet named Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. And it's a long story with a talking donkey, but eventually he shows up and he tells Balak the king, he says, look, I can only stand up there and say whatever words that Yahweh puts in my mouth. And uh, so three times they go up onto high ground, they look down at the people of Israel, who are, by the way, in rebellion against God. And this foreign prophet gets, stands up there and does his thing. But all three times he tries to curse the people of Israel and God won't let him and only uh, blessings come out of his mouth. And so he, this is his prophecy. And then he disappears off the scene. So that's chapter 22 through 24. But then what happens is chapter uh, 25. And I think I have slides for this. Yeah. It says this. Um, While uh, Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Uh, the, uh, these invited the people to, uh, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to uh, Baal or Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. 
And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So immediately after the Balaam story, what we read is the people of God fall into this cultic prostitution, and they wander away from God, and the punishment is severe. 24,000 people die as a result. So what does that have to do with Balaam? Well, uh, at the end of the chapter there, it says this, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. And so um, that's the story of Balaam. Now, back to Pergamum, right? Typology is when something happens in one place to teach us about something in another. And so all throughout the Bible, then, Balaam is pictured as the ultimate false prophet, the deceiver, right? He's a two-faced. He is not a good dude. So Jesus, in this letter, is saying, look, you've got a bunch of these Balaams there. And that was just a way for him to say, you've got false prophets, right? You've got these guys who are not working for me and are not actually speaking my words. And so um, uh, what were they teaching? We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says that they were false prophets. But through this typology, we can see what they were doing. They were leading the people away from the grace of God into the judgment of God. And these were not people who were visitors. They were church members. They were leaders. They were people with influence. And so here's the kicker, right, is the church in Pergamum was cool with it. It's not like there was any resistance. These people allowed these guys to stick around, and they signed them up to teach Sunday school, and they led small groups, and nobody did anything about it. And so Jesus is upset. They're letting this falsehood run rampant in this church. And so what's the solution? This is what Jesus says. Therefore, repent. Repent of these false beliefs and teaching. Now, if you remember, I've said this a million times, and um, the more you hear me preach, you'll hear this all the time. But the idea of repentance in the Bible is very simple. It means that you're facing one way, and you turn around, and you face the other way. That's what it means. It means to turn around. So what it means is that you're facing your sin and something that you're not supposed to be doing. But repentance doesn't just mean, well, I'm sorry for this, but I'm still going to face this way. What repentance means is I'm sorry for what I'm doing, and I'm going to replace it by turning around and facing something better. Does that make sense? So it's replacing it with something else. Turn to something better. And so whenever we talk about repentance, we have to talk about both sides of that coin. Repentance is not just saying I'm sorry. It's saying I'm sorry, and here's what I'm going to replace this sin with. So what is it? What is he calling them to leave? What is he... Uh, He's calling them to leave these false teachers, right, to throw them out. But what is he going to replace those? What are they going to replace the false teaching with um, is the truth of the gospel, right? People who boldly proclaim what is real, what is true. And he says, if you don't do it, so he says, if not, if you're not willing to replace this falsehood with gospel, if not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So again, it's that tie back to verse 12 where he says, I have this judgment coming out of my mouth. And so how will Jesus judge these people specifically? Well, it doesn't really say. Um, but let me tell you a story. Once there was a king. Um, this story actually shows up three times in the Bible. Um, in Chronicles, Kings, and in the book of Isaiah. There was a king named Hezekiah. And he was king in the southern kingdom of Judah. And there was the wicked Assyrian king sent his army. And they were outside the walls of Jerusalem. And everybody thought this huge, gigantic army was about to destroy, completely destroy uh, the city of Jerusalem, burn the temple, kill all of God's people. So Hezekiah prays, and then that night, uh, long story short, an angel of the Lord came and just wiped out the entire Assyrian army. It says there was 185,000 soldiers just dead, just like that. And then uh, everybody who survived, the king and a few others, ran back to, um, to Assyria. Now, think about that. 
That's one angel did that to 185,000 people. And that angel is somebody that Jesus created. That's a created being did that to the enemies of God. And so when Jesus, who is the creator of that being, says, if you guys don't cut it out, I'm going to go to war against you, that should be terrifying. Right? This is not nice language. This is absolutely terrifying language. That Jesus, by the way, is speaking to one of his churches. Right? These are not outsiders. These are insiders. And Jesus says, look, you guys, this is how seriously I take the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is life-giving, and this garbage that you're preaching is not. And so if you don't cut it out, I'm going to war against you now. So we don't know exactly what that means, but we know that's terrifying language. But at the same time that his, his word of terrifying judgment can be used right for cursing, his word can also be used for blessing. And that's what happens here at the end to those who promise to conquer, uh, who uh, obey him and conquer evil, right? He says, he who has an ear... So check both sides of your head if you have an ear. Uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except him who receives it. So again, uh, this language shows up. I don't remember if it's every letter, but it's a lot of the letters. Say, to him who conquers. But we've talked about this the last two weeks. When we're talking about conquering here, we're not talking about winning through power. The whole book of Revelation is about how this whole evil system of Babylon, and it's called Babylon, right? The system of evil and injustice is surrounding the people of God. And through it, the people of God conquer. But we do it not through winning and power, but through humility and love and service. That's how we're going to take Babylon down. Uh, and we do that faithfully until Jesus comes back, which we'll talk about next week, um, and... Uh, uh, redeems his people and brings us into the new heavens and new earth. So what happens, though, if these people are faithful, if they conquer, they repent, they get rid of these Balaam teachers, uh, and um, they start teaching the gospel again? He says, look, you're going to receive two things. The first thing is hidden manna. So this is, again, something typology from the Old Testament. Most of us know what manna was. It was the people wandering in the desert, and they're complaining about the food. We don't have enough food. So every morning they would go outside, and there would be food on the ground. And the food was this sweet bread, uh, it was called manna. And so hidden manna is a weird, obscure phrase. Um, nobody knows exactly what it means. It probably just has to do with provision. It was a way for Jesus to say, when you stand up for the truth, I'm going to take, don't worry, I'll be there to take care of you. Just like I was there to take care of the people wandering in the desert. But then the second thing he says is then you also receive a white stone with a new name. Now, there are, I found, over a dozen different interpretations of what this white stone means. So people writing academic papers and all sorts of stuff. There's basically two that actually kind of make sense and then a bunch that are maybe, I don't know. So I'll give you the two major ones and I'll let you decide. Um, first, in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient Roman world, white stones, uh, they had these stones called teresas, and they were used in athletic games like a trophy. And so maybe Jesus was saying, if you obey and conquer, right, you're the real MVP. I'm going to give you a trophy at the end and you're going to be rewarded in eternity. It's like we would just say a trophy. The second option is white stones were used in the ancient world also like tickets to special events. So if you wanted to go see the, the games at the Colosseum and you wanted to see a bunch of people get eaten by lions for some reason, uh, your ticket for that would be a little white stone um, because they were hard to fake because paint was expensive, basically. And so nobody would fake that instead of just buy the stone, you know. Um, so you had these little white stones and you would drop it in a bucket on your way into the games. And so maybe Jesus is saying, 
that this white stone, this is like your ticket into eternity. Both of those make sense. Maybe it's purposefully vague, I don't know, layered meaning, but you get the point, right? The one who obeys will be blessed uh, by their king, by Jesus. And those who disobey are going to have to go to war with the creator of the universe. So now, that's our letter um, to the church in Pergamum. But remember the first letter to the, the church in Ephesus? What was their problem? Do you remember? It was that they had lost their first love. They abandoned their first love. That's what Jesus tells them. Well, this church in Pergamum sort of did the opposite, right? They loved Jesus, and they held fast to his name, even to the point of death. Uh, and man, they re- you really got to love Jesus to be willing to be baked alive, uh, to suffer for his name. But they loved Jesus, and they gave up at the price of truth, right? They let all this false teaching into the church which is the opposite of what Ephesus did. They were all solid, but they had lost their first love. And so um, just like we talked about, uh, if you anybody went back and watched some of those, I know the porch people watched all those first, uh, second, and third John podcasts uh, that we did. False teaching in the, is a cancer in the church of God. And here's what I want you to see. When we talk about false teaching, we talk about truth. We don't want to be arrogant about it. We don't want to say, well, we need the truth just so that we can be right because being right feels good. And it makes us feel better because we have the truth. We, we don't want the truth, right, because it makes us feel good. We want the truth because the truth points people to Jesus. And real gospel truth always strengthens our dependence on our king. And the more we know about him, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more he moves in and he changes our hearts. And the more that he changes our hearts, the more that we are going to love the people around us who don't know the truth. And so when we reject the truth within our own churches, we have no chance to grow in our own faith, and we have no chance to be out there and to be the kind of conquerors that the book of Revelation calls us to be, the kind of conquerors who conquer through love and through service and through humility in a world around us that's trying to crash us. And so the only way forward is the gospel. And so we have to let the truth of Scripture mold us. So here's the question, though, and how we'll end, and then I've got to take off and head out to the East Bay. Uh, here's how we'll end, is how do we actually do that? How do we let the truth of God mold us? As we're talking about starting this new church together, this church startup, The Porch, uh, in this partnership, let me give you just four quick strategies that we're going to take to sort of move forward um, with gospel truth. How are we going to uh, take this truth into our lives because we love the King? The first thing is, our Sunday sermons are going to be very important. Like I said earlier, I love preaching. I love the fact that God calls people to preach and that he, God uses preaching in a way that's greater than anything that I can do. And like one of the evidences of that is there's been a lot of different times where I've preached a sermon and I thought, well, that was awful. <laughs> you know? And I just, I, I, the crowd wasn't into it. Nobody seemed to be paying attention. I might as well have been up there just reading a Burger King menu. And I thought, man, this was garbage. And then I walked off stage and somebody comes up and talks about one specific point and says, man, just really this sermon that really hit me deep. I'm like, really, that one? Did you listen? That was terrible, you know? And then sometimes I'll preach a sermon and I walk off the stage and I'm thinking, that was amazing. Jesus is really glad he has me preaching. You know, he should be really lucky. And then uh, I go and nobody says anything and it doesn't seem to work at all. That, that right there, that's kind of the evidence that what happens in the moment of preaching when we're talking about the word of God as the people of God is that God uses dumb people like me to speak his truth and his word to you guys' hearts. And so the preaching is not about me. It's not about you. It's about the work that God does in all of us together 
uh, as the word is preached. And so one of the things I want to say about our sermons is we really do value the truth. And so uh, we're going to read through books of the Bible together. Uh, the plan is we're going to start with the book of Luke. Uh, so if you want to start reading ahead, uh, when we start meeting up the street, we're going to start with the book of Luke. But here's the other thing is because we value truth uh, and because... You know, I'm just some dummy up here trying my best to teach God's word faithfully. I'm going to get things wrong sometimes. And so our rule is, if you can ever convince me that I got something wrong, the next week I'll get up in church and say, hey, Flora pointed out last week that I said this, and then she talked to me about it, and I was wrong about that, and so here's what's right. <laughs> but you've got to be able to convince me. You can't just come up and say, well, I think you were wrong about this, even if you're, you know, you're wrong. So anyway, uh, so we used to do this at my old church, and it was a lot of fun. So who gets the Scooby snacks, right, the brownie points? Uh, but we do it because we want the truth to be preached from our pulpits, and we want to take the Bible seriously on Sundays. It's why the pulpit is in, uh, you know, in the Reformation. We moved the pulpit to the middle of the stage because we say the, the word is what's center in our church services. Second thing is when we meet with our small groups, what we call missional families, we're going to discuss the Sunday sermons. We're going to go deeper together because what happens here is not the end of the game. What happens here is you guys are taking in information and the Spirit is speaking to your hearts, but then you're going to spend a few days thinking about it, and then you're going to get together with your group, and then you're going to hear from somebody else what they took away from the passage that we studied. And maybe what that person has to say to you, the Holy Spirit will use to hit your heart even more than what I said on Sunday. Right? The idea is to take this truth and to press it into our hearts, not for just John to get all the, the face time. You know? um, and so we're going to discuss these together in our groups, um, the third thing is we want to get really good at speaking the gospel to each other. And what I mean by this is, uh, and I'll talk about this more later, but uh, we want to get really good at inviting people in the church to say, hey, I need to hear what you think about this situation in my life, and we need to help process this situation through the lenses of the gospel together. And we need to open our lives up to hear that word, and we need to be willing, we need to know the gospel well enough to speak that word into other people's lives. Um, and then the last thing is, as we take in all this gospel truth, we don't want to keep it, uh, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. We want to be the kind of people who learn how to live as open followers of Jesus everywhere we go. So at work, with our friends, whoever it is, uh, we want the Bible and the, the truth of the gospel to flow, not just to us and then end, right? Like, a, what are the, uh, you know, the big lake behind a dam, right? All the water flows into it, and that's just kind of where it ends. That's how a lot of church people are. I'm just going to hoard all this water to myself. But what we want to be is the kind of people, you know, who the water is flowing through us, right? Like, the, the, the truth flows into us, gives us life, and then flows out of us into the lives of the people around us. As we love and serve people, we earn the right to speak uh, the gospel to them and tell them what we believe and why we believe it. And so that's what we want to do. Um, and so I'll end just by saying this. We have to remember what Jesus, as we talk about truth and how important truth is, we always have to, I always want to end with this. We have to remember what Jesus said about the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? You know that verse, nobody goes to the Father except through me. Um, we want the truth in our church, and we want to be so uh, obsessed with the truth, not because, like I said, not because we have this uh, fascination of this need with constantly being right, not because we're arrogant, uh, not because we're perfect, but because Jesus is the truth. And so when we say we want the truth, what we're saying is we want more of Jesus. When we read our Bibles, we don't read them for obscure facts about statues of Zeus in the city of Pergamum, although that's part of the truth. right? We're not reading it just to know more than the people at the church next door, to know more than somebody else in the pew. We're reading it because Jesus is the truth. 
And so the reason he says, look, with this false teaching, I'm going to go to war against you, is because what these people were doing is they were keeping other folks from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is where life comes from, right? We were created to be in relationship with him. And the more we press into falsehood, the more we are moving away from the life that he gives. But the more that we press into the truth, the more we, we see that life uh, in, our, um, in our own day-to-day, -day, in our church, and uh, that, you know, his, his truth is life-giving. And that's what we want to be about here um, at the porch. Amen? All right, let me just pray. Uh, and then I'm going to jump on my bike, and Flora's going to lead us in music, and I'm going to race to Castro Valley and see if I can get there by 10.15.